I love television. I just listened to this album the other day. Tom Verlaine was awesome. Then he tries to join Jane's Addiction, and look what happens. This is hell. Marquee Moon is one of my very favorite albums of all time, so thank you, Richard. Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. The unhoused are victims of state-sponsored structural violence. The state puts resources into getting the unhoused into a place, but homelessness continues to increase. Even when the unhoused jump through all the hoops the state insists that they do, far too often the unhoused cannot get off the streets. Government workers do as they are told by the state to help address the needs of the unhoused. As intermediaries, they impose a morality to which the unhoused must conform. The unhoused lives, even the most intimate aspects, are constantly watched by the state, repeatedly violating their privacy. Still, despite their acquiescence, the unhoused face, violence, insecurity, condescension, and at times it could come directly from the state that is supposed to be, supposedly, trying to get them in a house. It's as if the state and the public does not care about this vulnerable and precarious population, that the lives of the unhoused simply don't matter. If they die due to negligence from the state, despite the unhoused constantly seeking and requesting help, Nobody is ever held accountable or responsible for lives lost to poverty. It's as if the entire process of getting the unhoused into a house is a performance, an act that suggests something is being done when little to nothing does get done. So what could possibly incentivize a failing system? Well, under neoliberalism, profits is profit is the primary motivator and if you motivate organizations to provide social services via money making opportunities then under neoliberalism they'll figure out how to make helping the poor profitable and continue those money making opportunities of course this leads to a conflict of interest where suddenly ending poverty is bad for business and your job There's a lot to consider about the unhoused crisis in the United States that's already been being considered elsewhere, but it's time the U.S. starts asking the tough questions about the unhoused that for far too long have gone unasked. We will do our best to have a better understanding of the unhoused and the challenges they face in finding housing in a few minutes when we speak with Deanira Navarez Martinez, who conducted the Radical Housing Journal study, Homelessness in Southern California, street-level encounters with the state and the structural violence of performative productivity. Deanira is an assistant professor in the Urban and Regional Planning Program in the School of Planning, Design, and Construction at Michigan State University, a school that kicked me out. Her research focuses on the role of the state in homelessness and housing precarity and informality. You can follow Deanira on Twitter at Deant, that's D-E-Y-A-N-T, and you can find out more about her at dnmartinez.com. 
if I'm your bitter, <laughs> I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap teeth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz producing is Richard Norwood. Richard, anything new by you? Good morning, sir. Uh, good morning to you. Much better morning than yesterday morning. Awesome. I hear you evicted all your troubles. <laughs> yes, I did. I threw them out on the street with their luggage and everything. There's an old coffee table out there right now and some dirty socks. How about you? What's uh, new by you? I'm good. Luckily, we... Uh, missed most of the storm, I guess. So it wasn't too bad. It depends on the neighborhood you live in. You live, I'd uh, say, Humble like Park. eight miles yeah, south of me, yeah, about exactly. And uh, so, how, how bad was it by you? Uh, not, not, not terrible. We got four inches of snow, and I was able to get my car out of the uh, alley this morning, so that was cool. Wow, that's pretty impressive. Did they actually plow your alley? No, but uh, but there were ruts. Well, you know, it, it's really cool. I have a like you. I have a, a a little soccer field right right on the other side of my alley, so I can push all the snow to one side oh, or, or like everybody on our street can just push everybody all the snow to one side so it it helps to clear the alley so you're not blocking and, a neighbor's garage and i guess enough traffic went through that it pounded it down enough and to i was worried about getting into into the alley here but uh you know the restaurant all the restaurants up here get deliveries by with big trucks so you got to deliver was, goats early in yeah. the morning my friend <laughs> you got to get those goats next door yeah uh, our place we got a little bit more snow because we're a little bit closer to the lake i'd say we got maybe six six and a half inches we're supposed to get two to five inches of lake effect today i don't think you'll be getting any of that i don't even know if we'll be getting any of that but yeah it was uh, quite a crazy snowstorm yesterday very entertaining as always so earlier this week i apparently jinxed myself i said on these very airwaves or live stream or podcast however you are listening right now that for the first time in months i actually felt well i felt good after weeks of taking prescriptions my throat was no longer in pain from bronchitis or acid reflux or whatever else could have been causing it my agonizing cough which lingered since early summer seemed to have gone away my chronic lower back issues caused by an on-the-job injury years ago appeared to be on hold. Even my ongoing problems with intestinal inflammation had at least temporarily disappeared. What I did not know is the common side effects of getting off the prescription drugs I have been taking. Those side effects are brutal. For instance, you cannot digest food for at least 24 hours. Your digestive system essentially shuts down and the only things you can be eating are fermented foods like yogurt or kombucha as well as probiotics any attempt at ingesting salad food will be to put it mildly rejected for those of you who listen to the live stream and podcast my apologies for not being here yesterday for those of you who listen to the live saturday morning world broadcast premiere on chicago sound experiment wnur 89.3 fm you won't even notice more important than me jinxing myself by claiming that i will that i was feeling fine Richard, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what is more likely to happen this year than this is hell's anniversary party currently scheduled for July 2020? Nope. 2021? Nope. 2022? (laughs) Yeah, July 23rd, 2022. And we're so confident of that date that we have already set up a backup date of Saturday, (laughs) September 3rd, 2022, Labor Day weekend. So pencil that into your calendar as well. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want, the This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, 
or the much more protective face mask. The coffee mug, the This Is Held Guide to the 21st Century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisisheld.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. Thanks to Randall L. of Silver Spring, Maryland, who picked up a This Is Hell winter beanie or toque if you prefer. Randall is also the person who earlier this week suggested we have someone on to discuss the case of Stephen Donzinger. So thanks, Randall, for the guest suggestion, and thanks for supporting This Is Hell. Now I guess we got to get somebody on the show to talk about Stephen Donzinger, because after all, Randall did pick up a winner toque. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff takes sides in the werewolf versus vampire war. Richard will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Deanira on the unhoused again the question from hell is what is more likely to happen this year than this is hell's anniversary party leave your answer at our facebook page or tweet it to us and we will read them on air not only can you email us at chuck at this is with your guest or topic suggestions comments on the show constructive or destructive criticism you can also send us stuff in the actual mail to this is hell 2251 west devon avenue second floor Chicago, Illinois, 60659. That's This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, 2nd Floor, Chicago, Illinois. And wow, did we get some great stuff delivered to us this week. You may remember a couple of weeks ago, the good people at the Baffler Magazine sent me a letter stating that they were giving me a complimentary subscription to the Baffler for 2022. They also sent us a beautiful Baffler matchbook and told me that if I did not like the magazine, well, you know what to do. Well, the first issue of my subscription arrived the other day, and the latest issue is called Space Opera, with the opening editor's note entitled Space and Pornographia. The issue includes an article we featured on the show in January in an interview with Corey Pine, whose contribution is titled Dawn of the Space Lords. Billionaires have big plans to expand their dominion. So thanks to the Baffler for the free subscription, and no, I will not be using the very kindly provided matches to burn the issue. Also, we got another print from the wonderful people at Kennedy Prince in Detroit's McDougal Hunt neighborhood. Since the pandemic began, we've got nearly a dozen of these prints so far on six by eight inch pieces of cardboard featuring often revolutionary quotes, which is what you would expect from a conservative anarchist group of printers. And thanks again to Kennedy Prince Mimi Machete for turning on the rest of your colleagues and comrades to this is hell. This time the print says in big bold letters in the background, stop voter suppression. In the foreground is a quote by the early 20th century political activist and trade unionist Eugene Debs, who was one of the founding members of the industrial workers of the world and ran for president of the United States five times as candidate of the Socialist Party of America. In 1912, Debs actually won 6% of the vote, the highest total ever for a socialist candidate running for president. Here's the quote. I'd rather vote for what I want and not get it than vote for what I don't want and get it, which is something I adhere to whenever I go into the voting booth. Of course, friends and family tell me that voting for what I want is not pragmatic, it's not practical, and it's just throwing my vote away. But if voting for what you want is throwing your vote away, what does that say about whatever brand of democracy it is that we have here in the United States? Should democracy be vote for whoever you would rather win 
or vote for whoever you want to represent represent your political beliefs. Because if it's only about the two options offered by the major parties with the most wealth and power as given to them by the wealthiest and their corporations, is it any wonder that Democrats and Republicans alike vote not for who they want to lead the country, but who is the lesser of two evils? I know that Democrats think they're the only ones choosing between two evils, but you'd be surprised how many Republicans share that exact same view. And if democracy is about choosing between two evils, well, it's no wonder we are in the mess we are in. Finally, we got something delivered to us at the bar that we are not certain if we should thank whoever sent it to us on the air or not. For the past several years, we have received the official wall calendar of the Bundestag, Germany's parliament. The person who sends that to us, sends us the calendar, is not only a this-is-how listener, but actually works at the Bundestag. And the last thing we need is them getting in any trouble for sending us the Bundestag wall calendar. Now, the Bundestag wall calendar is not as sexy as you might think it is. In fact, all it is is a list of important dates for members of the Bundestag and their staffs. But they are all in German, so I have no idea what those meetings are about. But luckily, we will have Sebastian, who is a native German speaker, translating them for us this year. So again, you can email us at chuckatthisishell.com. You can message us via Facebook, direct message us via Twitter, or just send us stuff in the actual mail to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, 2nd Floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And whatever you send us, however you send it to us, we'll likely share it with everybody here on air. Coming up, state-sponsored structural violence against the unhoused. We will also tell you what's happening this week on our exclusive Patreon podcast, which you can subscribe to at patreon.com slash thisishell. And we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, as well as hearing from Def, Def, as well as hearing from Jeff Dorchin with the moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff takes sides in the werewolf V vampire war live from late capitalism where property has more rights than people and boy is that the case when it comes to the unhoused this is hell on our show we've had many conversations specifically with cultural critic henry Giroux, on the disposability of human beings especially young people within neoliberalism to date and after reading our guest writing there is no better example of that horrific disposability than how we here in the United States treat the unhoused. It is, it is as if suffering, the violence they face, and yes, at times their deaths due to poverty are not the fault of anyone but themselves, despite the repeated calls for help that never go answered. This lack of accountability and responsibility for lives lost to poverty is inhumane and sadly within our culture and society tolerated and normalized. Here to help us have a better understanding of why that is the case, Deyanira Navarez Martinez conducted the Radical Housing Journal study, Homelessness in Southern California, Street-Level Encounters with the State and the Structural Violence of Performative Productivity. You can follow Deyanira on Twitter at D-E-Y-A-N-T and find out more about her at dnmartinez.com. First, Deyanira, thank you very much for rescheduling after my problems with getting off of prescribed meds yesterday. I really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. I'm glad you're feeling better, Chuck. Thank you very much. Like that's um, thank you. I really appreciate it. So for those who may not have heard the term before, and I guess this just has to be talked about right at the beginning, why is unhoused better than referring to the unhoused as homeless? Why is it better than referring to it as homelessness? 
Yeah. So um, homeless is, in in my perspective and in the perspective of of uh, several folks who are academics and activists, is considered dehumanizing, and it blames the individual for their condition. Um, to the extent that I use the word homeless or homelessness, I'm usually using it as an adjective. You know, when you use the word home. Um, it, it it is a lot. It's much more than just a building, right? And so, when you talk about someone being unhoused, you're calling attention to the fact that they don't have a building where they can go and get shelter, rather than than home. There's, you know, home is much more than just a building. So, why do we want to blame the individual for their condition when it comes to being unhoused? Why why is there such a drive to do that? Whether it's at the personal level or at the level of the state. Well, then that because that calls, uh, you know, that makes folks feel like, oh, well, then I don't have anything to do about it. Um, it is their moral failing that they are homeless. It is their choice. Um, you know, when you talk to folks about this, they often tell you, oh, well, you know, that's how they want to live or that's how they have chosen. And, and um, you know, there are consequences to your actions uh, type of discourse. Um, and, and it takes the responsibility away from the rest of us for having to do something about helping folks who are in this situation. You did your field work in Beach City, California. Please describe Beach City and tell us why you decided to do your field work there. Yeah, so Beach City um, is a pseudonym, and and I do that uh, as an ethnographer to protect, you know, the the folks that I worked with there. Beach City is a, a quintessential beach California city. If you've ever been in in Southern California, you know what I'm talking about. There's a big surf culture. There's lots of wealth. If you've ever uh, unfortunately stumbled onto the Real Housewives of Orange County, you've seen uh, kind of what I what uh, I'm talking about. Uh, lots of wealth, folks who um buy homes for millions and millions of dollars but then also a uh lots of folks who unfortunately are left out of the system and have to survive on the street um and one of the one of the things that beach city is really an example of is um folks who end up having to live on the street, but they're actually from the place where they're living. And in California, especially, you hear these narratives of, oh, well, you know, we end up with all of the homeless people, all the unhoused people, because they come here, we have great weather, we have the beach, you know, why wouldn't you want to be homeless in California rather than being homeless in Michigan, for example, where I'm currently at, and there's uh, 10 inches of snow on the on the ground. But when you actually meet these folks, they're from there, they grew up there. Um, what one of the men that I became very close to was, you know, a, a local football star for the local high school. Um, but he doesn't have $3 million to buy a home in town, um, in the town that he grew up in. And so the folks that just got there two years ago feel that they have the right to tell him to, you know, go back to where he came from, where, you know, he's actually where he came from. So. And that's where he would have his entire support network from the age from when his he was born until the moment that he becomes homeless. And if you then punish the person who is unhoused for being unhoused by forcing them to move away from their support system, their ability to become housed 
is in- lessened greatly because they do not have that support system of family and friends from their entire life. You write the bureaucratic state is ever present in the lives of unhoused individuals. In fact, it is difficult for them to escape the constant watchful eye of the state. In many ways, the state is much more present in their lives than in the lives of any other segment of the population. Do the unhoused need the state more involved in their lives than any other person in society? Do they need the most help from the state, thus justifying the involvement of the state in their lives? You know, when um, when I talk about the watchful eye of the state and the involvement of the state, you know, it would be one thing if the state was present to provide housing or to provide assistance, to provide cash assistance or any of these other things that would be really helpful. But the state is often there just to criminalize these folks. So criminalizing them for having to use the restroom and not having restrooms that are open and so doing it out in public and then having to get a ticket or go to jail for that or sleeping in public um, or doing all of the other things that the rest of us also have to do but them having to do it outside in the elements because they don't have a place to do it indoors um, and so it would be one thing if the state was there to be helpful um, but the state is often there to criminalize And you write that international development and global urbanism scholar Ananya Roy has used the term propertied citizenship to characterize this dynamic, citing Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy. Roy explains property gives you the ability to resist the demands of the state, which is always going to try to control your life. In other words, the state dictates if, when, and where an unhoused person, as you were pointing out just now, can rest, eat, sleep, use the restroom, or wash up. And anthropologist Akhil Gupta's words, the state is implicated in the minute texture of everyday life for the unhoused, the criminalization of their existence amplifies their entanglement with the state. So if their existence is criminalized, how illegal is it to be unhoused? Is their life criminalized because their level of poverty is a crime? Because this is one of the things that the United States had always boasted about, that they weren't going to be, the United States was not going to be a place where there would be paupers' graves. So how illegal is it to be poor in the United States? It is very illegal and it is very expensive to be poor in the United States. Um, and one of the one of the things that I tried to do in this particular article is to place U.S. extreme poverty in this global conversation about poverty. Um, I, as you point out, the U.S. has always, you know, uh, um, made had these narratives that we are not like the rest of the world, that we are not like those places where, you know, people are poor and live on the street and and um, and do all these things. But in my work, I'm actually showing that, no, we actually have a lot in common with um, with other places. And we have an extreme poverty problem, just like other folks. Um, I use what I call a um, thinking from the South perspective, which was why I highlight scholars like Gupta and Roy, who have done work in the global South. Um, Because, uh, you know, as someone who grew up on the U.S.-Mexico border, I've always been able to see um, that that these places are more alike than they are different, even though, uh, you know, we we are told from a very young age that, that they're not You also point out that as the housing crisis worsens, more and more people end up in precarious housing arrangements, thus prompting local government intervention from frontline street-level bureaucrats, which we'll be talking about in a bit, like police, social workers, public health workers, and code enforcement. These bureaucrats have limited resources and are often embedded in uh, 
p- political contexts that are not condu- conducive to reducing homelessness. In this context, this study also examined how street-level bureaucrats inflict structural, state-sanctioned violence and on, on the ways unhoused people experience this violence. How does the state sponsor this violence? Right. So the way that I conceive of this is similar to the way that Gupta talks about extreme poverty in India, where we have these bureaucratic processes that we put into place, uh, those hoops you were talking about to, to make people go through when they're, you know, needing to receive assistance from the state, whether it is, you know, and, and, and some of these are contentious, like being sober, for example, um, but some of them are, you know, having to fill out countless forms, uh, having to go to meetings that for someone who is unhoused and often doesn't have any transportation and has to rely on public transportation is a very difficult thing to do. Um, having to even, even having to join meetings on the phone is often very difficult because you don't know if you'll have your phone on today or tomorrow. And all of these things have really real um, consequences for the folks that are having to go through this. Um, And by including them in this bureaucratic process that often doesn't go anywhere, gets their hopes up, um, makes them, you know, feel less than by having to go through these countless times, we're inflicting violence on these folks. I can imagine somebody right now might be thinking, well, if we just brought the meetings to them so they don't have to use mass transit or get a ride from a friend to get to those meetings, maybe that would solve the problem. So how effective are these meetings in getting the unhoused housed? You know, they're they're not effective because the only thing that are, is ever going to solve homelessness is housing. And the main problem is that this housing doesn't exist. And so you can go out to them. You can have the meeting, you know, right there on the street corner and you can sign them up for the waiting list. But if the waiting list is four years long and the housing doesn't exist, then that's not going to do anything. Is that state-sponsored violence intentional and recognizable. Do the street level bureaucrats see this as violence and purposely engage in this violence or do they not recognize it as violence? And if not, why don't they recognize it as violence? You know, this is this is an interesting question that comes up a lot because, you know, I personally feel that whether they recognize it or not is not necessarily of consequence. The issue is that it is happening. However, um, you don't have to have a system in place or a, a a situation where these, let's say these street level bureaucrats were going home every night and saying, you know what, you know, I like to inflict this violence and I'm going to continue to do it and I'm doing it on purpose. You don't have to have that for it to be happening. Uh, you actually could have bureaucrats who are going home and saying, you know, I do this job because I want to help people. I really do want to um, get everybody that I can off of the street, but the same result is going to continue to happen. And, and that systemic problem, that is the issue that I'm that I'm pointing out. So would it be fair to call them naive? Um, in some instances, in some instances, maybe they are, um, you know, uh, uh, cynical at, at this point. Um, but I think there are definitely folks who are trying to help. Um, it's just that you can't help someone get into housing when the housing doesn't exist. 
And you also point out these street-level bureaucrats perpetuate the myths that, one, housing is available for all, and two, we still have homelessness only because the unhoused refuse to accept these opportunities. Why do you think they believe those myths? Do they simply not have access to information that proves these are myths, or is there something more happening here? Well, there's a couple of things. Some folks don't have the the access to the information. Other folks have access to the information, but really do believe that, you know, um, they're working hard. Their organizations are working hard to make something happen. Um, but I think the the issue is that so folks get tagged as service resistant after, you know, um, when they you know, refuse the help and quote unquote help. Right. But what I think is important to point out is that folks don't usually start there. They usually go through this process two, three, four times of meeting with people and signing up for these lists and then find out two years later that somehow you know, unbeknownst to them, they got kicked off of the list and had to sign back up on the list. And now they're another two years behind on the list. And so eventually after going through this performance, you know, four or five times, folks say, okay, I'm not going to do this anymore. And and almost as an act of resistance, they, they decide that they're not going to um, engage in the performance anymore. Um, and, and that's when they get tagged service resistance. And this is where this narrative of, well, they're not getting help because they don't want it coming from, even though there's this whole, you know, history of being engaged in the performance previously and then not getting any results. You write that these actors set forth the conditions through which services are made available. Performative productivity refers to the set of structurally violent practices that these actors acquire of unhoused people as the terms of service. These practices include scheduling meetings, as you're saying, filling out countless forms that require invasive divulging of private information, signing up for wait lists that go nowhere, and surrendering their rights, and often accepting an externally imposed moralistic framework. The terms are not negotiable, compelling the unhoused to either participate in the manner mandated of them or risking losing eligibility for any housing and non-housing services. So what housing and non-housing services do you get in exchange for an unhoused life with intensified surveillance and bureaucracy from a condescending state that imposes a set of morals you must accept? For the unhoused, is it worth going through this performance and is it necessary to survive? Yeah, so that's that's the, the really cruel part, right? That if you don't participate in the performance, a lot of times you become ineligible for any any of the services that you've already been able to gain. So let's say you've been able to sign up and you get $15 of um, SNAP assistance to get food or you get even $100 of it. Um, you have to continue to participate in, in check-ins and in uh, refiling of forms and doing all of these things in order to man- maintain your eligibility for this. And, and you know, it doesn't sound like a big burden to you or to me who have laptops or who have computers at home and or a phone that we can, you know, get on and, and, and set aside time to do all of these things. But when you don't have those things, it's actually a huge burden to do. Um, But if you don't do it, then you lose some of these things that are the only things that are, um, you know, allowing you to survive. Um, And so in that way, it's a huge burden for folks. You're right that this uh, performative productivity is tantamount to structural violence on behalf of the state. 
So if so, why why go through this performance? Who is the performance for? The performance is for the state um, and uh, in, in a lot of ways also for, for folks who are um, opposed to, to giving assistance to unhoused folks because they bought into these narratives that it's a moral deficit or that there is their fault. Um, and so by uh, having them have to perform work, I mean, the, the American way is that you work and you get paid for it. And, and that's basically what our life consists of, right? And so in this way, we've made unhoused people and also street level bureaucrats, both that work for the state and, and work for nonprofits have to work for the housing that they want. Um, and, and, and the really cruel part at the end of it is that it would be one thing if we were actually providing it, but we're not. And you point out that while these frameworks are commonplace in global discourses of poverty, in the United States, many of these issues have remained unexplored. Is the United States the only place then where, or at least when relative to European countries, other Western countries, uh, the only place where we believe that there's a moral deficit when it comes to being unhoused? When it comes to the, to the unhoused, how much is the U.S. behind Europe and why? Is it simply because we just don't put enough resources into the social safety net? Yeah, so, you know, I think these moral discourses are probably prevalent in lots of places, but I think in the U.S. we have this, um, we, our, our social safety net is so behind what other developed countries is that we have a way bigger problem with it. Um, you know, and, and I often talk about um so public housing has this horrible reputation in the U.S., not because it necessarily doesn't work, but because we haven't done it the right way. We have, um, you know, the state did public housing in a way that it turned out very badly for, for some folks and, and then it got stigmatized. But our biggest public housing program in the U.S. and in, in, in thinking about public housing in, in that it is a program that the U.S. government helps to to fund is for middle class folks when they get their uh, tax deductions for their mortgages. And so it obviously works when the state gets involved in housing. And so having um, a much more robust uh, public housing program that encompassed lots of folks, even middle class folks, I think would be the most helpful solution. And that's what uh, some European countries already do. You describe how in a manner similar to street level bureaucrats, the trenches consist of individuals that bridge the state and society. They exist in the middle and are tasked with applying state rules and regulations in the trenches with the unhoused and street level bureaucrats. Is the state accountable for whatever takes place, or is it the direct responsibility of the bureaucrat themselves, how they interpret state rules, they are told to carry out, and the unhoused? Is is this the state, in, in essence, outsourcing responsibility and accountability to street-level bureaucrats? Well, so I think that, that this conversation about the state can be really slippery, right? When we talk about the state, a lot of times we're imagining this, like it's almost like a metaphysical, like God-like the state. And, and, and what I'm doing in my work is trying to break it down. Okay, what is the state? And so if we think about the state in the everyday relationship with citizens, then you see that the state is actually a set of 
behaviors and actors and uh, interactions that happen every day between the citizen and folks who are coming um, in to impose the will of the state or what the laws are, right? And so when I look at the state, I'm looking at these interactions in order to figure out you know, how it is that the state is um, imposing different things. And so, for example, but you do bring up an interesting um, conversation, something that folks who have looked at, for example, welfare policy have, have pointed out that, you know, the state can say, hey, we have welfare, but if you show up to a welfare office and you're talking to a social worker that works for the state and they're not actually handing it out to folks, then do you actually have welfare policy? And I think that that's kind of the the tension that you're pointing out. Um, and, and that does happen. Um, not necessarily that the state is outsourcing the, that work to these folks, but the, that's how the work of the state actually happens in the trenches. And I want to make certain that people don't think that I'm trying to express a like all the faults is the big bad government. It's all the horrible bureaucracy because you write while street level bureaucratic theory is useful due to its uh, treatment of uh, discretion of those tasked with enforcing the will of the state at the most basic level. The everyday state provides a focus on its treatment of these interactions of the representatives of the state and citizens in what is called quotidian practices by focusing on such quotidian practices and how citizens negotiate their relations with local officials and representatives of the state, we gain insight into how individuals relate to what is done in the name of the state. So you mentioned state-sponsored uh, violence against the unhoused. Is the everyday state cruel? And if so, what explains that cruelty? Is that cruelty of the everyday state anything new? Or is it something that is just a result of the cutting of funds for the unhoused in the age of neoliberalism contributed, uh, that contributes to the cruelty? And has that cruelty from the state on the unhoused always been there? Yeah, so um, I think that it is uh, um, a result of neoliberalism. It is a result of cutting all, you know, cutting programs to help folks. It's a result of uh, cutting the funding and then making it into grants that then... Um, non-state actors, people, the, the folks that I call new street-level bureaucrats who work for nonprofits, making them do the work. Um, and instead of folks who work for the state, these street-level, the more traditional street-level bureaucrat, it is a result of all of that. You mentioned how anthropologist Akhil Gupta argues that the extremely poor in India exemplify a homo sucker in that their death is, in case I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, S-A-C-E-R, in that their death is not recognized as a, violence, in, a violation in any respect, not a violation of a norm, a rule, a law, a constitutional principle, not even perhaps of the idea of justice. Gupta poses the critical question, does not providing food, clothing, shelter, and health care to someone who is obviously in dire need represent killing? So if someone is in your home, was about to die, if you did not provide help, you could easily provide, that would be causing someone's death through neglect. Is that state-sponsored violence against the unhoused a knowing and willful neglect of fulfilling their apparent and obvious needs? Or are these killings due to the state simply not knowing what the unhoused need or unable to provide it? Yeah, I think that that's willful. Um, and, and, and even in the example 
you know, Gupta's example. In India, you could potentially have the argument, oh, well, India is a country that doesn't necessarily have the funds to do all of this. But in the U.S., we don't have that excuse. In the U.S., we could actually be providing homes for these people. We could actually be um, providing food and health care for these people, but we decide not to. We decide to fund the military or to fund other things that aren't directly helping people. And so I think that that yes, we are um, inflicting this violence and these killings are, you know, um, inflicted by the state. And we're actually even more responsible than in some other places because we do have the resources to be able to do something about it and we choose not to. Daniel, I'm learning so much in this conversation, I forgot to reintroduce you to our listening audience. We have speaking with Daniela Navarez Martinez, who conducted the Radical Housing Journal study, Homelessness in Southern California, Street Level Encounters with the State and the Structural Violence of Performative Productivity. You can find out more about her at dnmartinez.com. So is nobody held responsible for those dying from extreme poverty? because it is a collective crime that we all contribute to by allowing for or making political choices that allow for death by poverty? I mean, is it even possible to vote for ending death by poverty? Do, do, is, it a bi, is there a bipartisan consensus in allowing for, tolerating, and normalizing death by poverty? Unfortunately, I think that, yes, we get this from, you know, both sides of the aisle here in the U.S. I think that it's it's entrenched in our um, culture, U.S., you know, culture that people have to work for things. And, and this performance is the work that we're making them do. Uh, I think we need a, a, a radical um, change in order for this to, to become a different situation. And you point out that death rates in Orange County, California, have set records. 330 unhoused individuals died on the street in 2020 compared to 200 in 2019. Nobody is ever held accountable because these deaths are not seen as outside the norm. They are not seen as collateral damage, the direct result of the housing crisis. Poverty should be understood as an intentional act of violence in this context, given that these deaths are preventable. Are these preventable deaths not prevented because nobody's nobody knows they happen is death by extreme poverty tolerated normalized so much that the public is simply unaware and uninformed about death by poverty because Fox News and even the front page of the New York Times is leading their news with memorials for police officers whenever there is a police funeral last year across the United States 458 police officers were killed in the line of duty nationally however dying from covid for whatever reason, is considered dying in the line of duty. 301 officers died of COVID, so 157 were killed in the line of duty from something rather than COVID. Orange County alone had 330 unhoused deaths in 2020 alone. Why do we purposely ignore the deaths of the unhoused? And if they were treated like news, do you think it would raise awareness that could lead to actual assistance for the unhoused and those in extreme poverty? Yeah, you know, it's easy to um, discount these deaths because as we've been talking about here, even, you know, with with our narratives about being homeless, it, we dehumanize these folks and we we have these narratives that they choose to live this way and that they 
they made decisions in their life that they ended up this way. And then we add the fact that we have these narratives about, oh, it's the housing crisis, as if the housing crisis is, you know, the one going out there and doing these things to these folks. Um, and so it's easy for nobody to be held accountable because it's just a, it's a direct result of how crazy the housing market is. And, and they're, you know, they were there because they wanted to anyway, instead of taking a, a step back and thinking, okay, what could we actually be doing to help folks in these situations to access housing? And you write that these mundane state practices systematically create exclusions through normal bureaucratic procedures in ways that depoliticize killing the poor. And I know that you've already touched on this a little bit, but I wanted to make sure that you expanded on it a bit. What are the politics missed when we view killing of the poor as depoliticized? What are the politics behind killing the poor? Yeah, so the depoliticizing happens when you're, you know, the all of these situations and all of these things are happening with, oh, but, you know, we have a process and everybody gets help. Those who don't get help is because they don't want it without actually acknowledging that the issue is not that people aren't filling out the forms or going to the meetings or getting on the waiting list. But the real problem is that we don't actually have housing to put them in. And so we make them go through the these cycles. And then at the end of the day, you know, one of the things that I explain to people a lot, and sometimes, you know, they don't, they, they haven't thought it, about, thought about it in this way is that you could have a situation where you have an unhoused person who let's say they have all of their documentation available, which is kind of rare because a lot of times, um, you know, they'll have their birth certificates or their IDs taken away by the police or lost in the shuffle of, of being uh, unhoused. But Let's say you have uh, the ideal person who has all of their documentation ready to go. They've been able to get to all of their meetings. They've been able to sign all the paperwork and they've been able to make all of the phone meetings, everything. Um, There's a situation where they go through this whole entire process. And at the end of that day where they did all of this, they still have to go back and sleep on the street because the only thing that that did was get them in at the end of a waiting list that might be four years long um, and there is no housing for them, especially if they're a single person, a single male, um, they're, they're probably not going to get, you know, into temporary shelter right away. Um, and, and they're going to have to go back to that street corner where they were when they began that process. You've been saying how there is no housing for these unhoused people to actually become housed. Yet, when I read articles, like just yesterday, I was reading an article about the unhoused in San Francisco, and they said this isn't morally or ethically correct when there are so many vacant apartments and vacant properties in the San Francisco area that are just sitting there empty. So what's wrong with that kind of analysis when we say, because you're saying that there is no housing available. Here's these people in commentaries constantly saying, oh, no, this uh, housing is available. We're just not using it. What's what are we missing in that conversation? Well, we're missing that that conversation we started with about property and who owns this and the market, right? So yes, they're absolutely correct. In this country, we have more vacant properties and apartments and housing than unhoused people. Um, but we don't have the quote unquote affordable housing available for the folks who are at the at the bottom of of that. Um, and when you're thinking about the market, you have to consider that there are folks that are not able to participate in any market. And that's what we don't have. We don't have housing available for folks who aren't able to participate in the market. 
You also mentioned that behavioral and physical violence often cause bodily harm. However, we do not often think about the bodily harm caused by inequality. While some economists suggest that poverty is the result of market forces, scholars of structural violence suggest that poverty and hunger are a hallmark of structural violence. So first of all, why is structural violence so difficult for us to see, the people who are not the street-level bureaucrats, just you and me? Why is it so difficult to see the structural violence? Yeah, so, you know, one of the examples that that scholars use to illustrate what structural violence looks like is, you know, when you have one man who beats his wife, you have physical violence, you have direct violence. But when you have one million men who beat their wives, you have a structural problem. And so when it's so widespread like that, it, it's, it's something that we just normalize. It's something that happens. And so that's one of the reasons why it's so difficult for the rest of us to see uh, when, when it's right in our face. So if poverty is not caused by market forces, but structural violence, what is that relationship between market forces and structural violence? Right. So, you know, the, the, the market is something, is another one of these narratives that we tell ourselves of like, well, you know, money will, if we just let the market do its thing, money will trickle down and everybody's going to be able to get you know, in on this and we're going to be great. It's going to be fine. But we fail to account for people who are not able to participate in this market for whatever reason. Um, and it could even be that they don't want to participate in this market. Um, and, and so then we we have folks who have mental health problems that can't get, you know, a regular job. They don't, we have folks who for some reason, don't have the skills that are um, valued in this market um, system. And so then what do we do with folks who aren't able to participate for whatever reason in this market? We have a responsibility to be able to make sure that everybody um, is is housed, because housing is a human right. Um, and so we need to, to figure out how to do that. You write that structural violence scholars' discussions about life chances and outcomes are not completely dissimilar to, as a past guest on our show has discussed before, economist Amartya Sen's conceptualization of poverty as unfreedom. Sen's capabilities approach states that poverty is the absence of basic capabilities or freedoms to avoid such perils as hunger and disease. What freedoms are lost through poverty? And do we recognize that those in poverty have fewer freedoms because I have heard people on the right say, oh, look at these people. They have a complete freedom over their lives. They can do whatever they want, whatever they want. So what happens, what what freedoms are lost through poverty? Oh, in the U.S., it's actual real freedom. Um, lots of folks end up in our jails because they are poor. Uh, because let's say someone's living in their car and they're parked somewhere between 2 a.m. and 5 a.m. where there's an ordinance that, that that city decided that because they don't want people sleeping in their cars, they're going to impose an ordinance that doesn't allow people to park on the street between 2 a.m. and 5 a.m. And they get tickets and they get enough tickets that they can't pay because they are poor and then they get their shelter which is their car taken away then they have so much debt that they can't pay that they end up in jail i mean in the in the u.s um you know poverty can really um um even take that 
uh, literal freedom from you. And we have lots of people in jail um, just because they are poor, even with some of the work that I've previously done on bail reform. There are people sitting in jail because they don't have money to pay for the bail. Um, and, and while other folks um, can, you know, who have enough money to pay can can just walk out the door. Um, and so in, in, in the U.S., um, you, it, it takes your actual freedom and we have people in jail because they are poor. And you write how economists purport to provide, uh, or you know, some people provide uh, housing under the assumption that the first step to help the unhoused is to provide them with housing without any conditions, like requirements that they be sober or have a job. But in practice, they frame services for the chronically unhoused population as economic initiatives rather than social services and reinforce the neoliberal conditions that produced housing insecurity in the first place. Why is housing not the first step toward addressing the needs of the houseless? Why are economic initiatives not as successful as social services in addressing the needs of the homeless? Yeah, so it goes back to this, you know, the, the conversation we've been having about neoliberalism. Um, activists and and a lot of housing scholars believe that a housing first model is the only way it to to tackle this issue. So basically, getting folks into housing as soon as possible, not putting in the hurdles of well, you have to be sober before you can get in, or any of these other hurdles that we often put in place before someone can get housing. And, and the idea behind that is that because that can be a jumping board to other things. If they are then housed, maybe then they'll decide personally that they want to get sober and it's easier to get them to go to rehab from there when they already have housing. Or if they want to reestablish connections with family, it's easier to you know, uh, have folks do that when they already have a, a house or a, a place um, that, that they're um, sheltered in. Um, but a lot of times what happens is not that and 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 even the folks who make the argument uh, there's there's um uh you know folks who say well we just have to do that because that's the right thing to do and that's kind of one of uh, the place where i come from then there's also the folks who say well that we have to do that because that's the economic you know best practice to do we save a lot of money by doing that which is actually true as well um trying to appeal to the folks who maybe don't necessarily um care um about um you know whether someone is housed if they're not empathetic whatever it, maybe appealing to their purse strings is a better way to to do it and and, and it's true um housing folks uh is way cheaper for all of us than maintaining jails or maintaining hospitals where folks who are unhoused um, often, you know, go so that they can, for a couple of days, at least have a roof over their head um, and, and a couple of meals. It's cheaper than doing all of those things. Um, the, the law enforcement that we that we end up paying for to police and criminalize these folks rather than providing housing. And so it's it, it all um, the social services are more effective and also uh, are are a better investment for all of us. So neoliberalism creates inequality. Does neoliberalism create the circumstances that not only lead to poverty and being houseless, but then profits from the increase in the number of poor caused by neoliberalism? So does neoliberalism not only create the circumstances for being unhoused, but then the system also profits from people being unhoused? 
Oh yeah, neoliberalism is implicated in, in every aspect of this. Um, it, it creates the inequality that um, uh, that took a lot of the services that used to be in existence at one point um, and created um, some of the issues that we're having, and then also created the system where nonprofits have to, um, you know, compete for grants that then they uh, take to try to help these folks. But if you, you know, the the, the study on nonprofits and the, the nonprofit industrial complex has shown that when you have a system like that, um, what you actually get is nonprofits who try to maintain uh, the funding rather than provide the services. So it's implicated in every part of the, the, the process. You also mentioned how a lot of people just assume that these uh, programs for the unhoused are very effective. What happens to our view of the unhoused when we exaggerate the effectiveness of services for the unhoused, when we believe that the state is doing everything they can possibly do to help the unhoused? You know, so then we create the situation where we tag folks that are still because we, you know, we get fed this narrative that, oh, well, we have all of this funding that we're putting into it. We have all of these people going out and trying to sign folks up for these things. They just don't want it. And so they, they creates in, in the rest of us this perception that there is housing available and the folks who are still out uh, homeless it must be because they don't want it when that's not the case. The case is that we do have money that is given to folks that the state uses to do outreach and go and sign people up for lists and, and, and do this whole performance. But then it doesn't go anywhere because we actually don't invest any money in creating housing for these folks who are unable to participate in the housing market. We were discussing earlier the bipartisan support for allowing people to die from poverty without having anybody held accountable or responsible. Neoliberalism is also gets bipartisan uh, support here in the United States. Without neoliberalism, how different do you think the challenges of the unhoused would be? You know, if we had a system that was more empathetic, a system where we would provide housing for folks, and like I mentioned earlier, a system like this doesn't have to be just for the in-house. It could help. I know lots of middle-class folks who could use help with their housing as well. When you create entitlements like that, um, you would be helping a lot more people. Something like, you know, for example, one of the things that I use, Medicare, um, that folks who are wealthy are still eligible to get Medicare. It's something that works and something that people have actually accepted. So if we had housing that was similar, um, it would be it would help lots of folks. You write of physical and structural violence. One usually follows or reinforces the other. Military and armed forces often fortify structural violence and systematically confine individuals to cycles of poverty and vulnerability. So in your opinion, is there a connection to wars overseas and physical violence back home, even among those who do not engage in that war? Is there a connection between wars overseas and violence back home? Oh, absolutely. The fact that we, you know, fund the military to billions in, you know, of dollars rather than using some of that funding to actually provide what we need here, um, what well, the housing that we need is definitely perpetuating this. First of all, uh, I would like to say 
hello to you in East Lansing. I lived in East Lansing for several years. I used to be a dishwasher at Beggar's Banquet, if you know that restaurant by chance. Uh, yeah. And, and I used to, uh, yeah, I did a lot of horrible jobs that I was fired from in East Lansing. So I hope you're enjoying your. I heard you got 10 inches of snow last night. You were saying that earlier. Friends yes. of mine contacted me today. I hope that your day is going well. But uh, one last question for you, Dania. We've been speaking with Dania Navarez. Uh, Martinez con- conducted the Radical Housing Journal study, Homelessness in Southern California, Street Level encounters with the state and the structural violence of performative productivity. I'll have to tell you in an email what was the special bonus I got for working at Beggar's Banquet, because I can't tell you on the air, because it is outside of the purview of uh, legality. So uh, you can follow Daniela on Twitter at D-E-Y-A-N-T, and you can find out more about her at dnmartinez.com. One last question for you, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is called the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you may have to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Considering the performative productivity we've been discussing and social services under neoliberalism becoming profitable, leading to a conflict of interest for those who do want to help the unhoused, what would you say to someone who is either working to help the unhoused right now, who is studying to be a social worker or has decided that they want to have a career in social work addressing the needs of the unhoused, is it worth the effort or or is that kind of work merely complicit in continuing the plight of the unhoused? Ah, you know, that is a really difficult question. But I, you know, in the field, I worked and met lots of amazing social workers who believe that, you know, um, that housing is a human right. And so I would say to someone in, in that situation that they do uh, that they do need to be out there, especially if they believe that this system is not what we need to have in place, uh, because those are the folks who really go above and beyond and recognize what is going on and, and try to, to find ways to, to still help folks when all of this is still going on. Thank you so much for being on the air with us. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I love the study that you uh, printed, and I definitely want to be in contact with you in the future to have you back on the show because we've had a lot of people talking, uh, contacting us saying that we should be talking about the unhoused problem here in the United States more, and we've had difficulty in finding people who want to discuss it, especially in a way that somebody who's done a study about it like you have. So, Daniela, and uh, one more thing I just wanted to mention. Uh, everybody should go check out her article, and that's because she did a lot of field work. And she has these case studies within her article that we did not get a chance to talk to, even though we've been speaking with her for 50 minutes. We didn't get a chance to talk to her about those case studies. And you should read those because it really brings home the point of the challenges of the unhoused. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. I really appreciate it, Dana. Thank you, Chuck. Take care. Bye-bye. Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime, as is the case in the uh, case of the unhoused. This is hell if that conversation with Dayanita on the unhoused and the performative productivity of anti-homeless programs was in some way informative, enlightening, or made you realize that, yes, this really is hell. Please show your appreciation by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell or go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported. This is hell. Remember, without you, we got... Nothing. So thanks to you for your support. We do not profit enough to be a not-for-profit, and we don't accept any grants, so it's all on you. This week's question from hell. Well, Richard, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, 
what's more likely to happen this year than This Is Hell's Anniversary Party? Scheduled for July 2020? Or July 2021? Or July 23rd, 2022? Or uh, September 3rd, 2022? <laughs> what is more likely to happen this year than This Is Hell's Anniversary Party? Richard, how are our listeners responding? I have a few answers. Sweet. Neil thinks that he will miss the party because of a huge traffic jam. Somehow, self-driving cars develop class consciousness and refuse to move. <laughs> that is a great answer to this week's question from Al. Borky B answers, that raise my boss talked about in 2018. <laughs> yeah, that's not happening. <laughs> And our Jeffrey answers, a new literary award will be founded, and the first winner will be my mustache. <laughs> That's disgusting. Jeff, first you have to grow a mustache. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know if he can. I know he can grow a beard. It's the mustache I'm not sure about. Any more? A few more. Um, what is more likely to happen this year than This Is Hell's anniversary party? John S. answers, hell will freeze over. <laughs> yeah. Michael C. answers, America making the switch from an anocracy to an endocracy. <laughs> like that. Flying Needle answers, nothing good. <laughs> Yikes. What's more likely to happen this year than This Is Hell's anniversary party? Hypocrite Reader answers, Cyber Jeff Dorchin comes back in time from a distant future to warn Chuck and Alex about the perils awaiting them at the 110th anniversary party <laughs> before it's too late. So that'll be happening, by the way, in case you want to put that in your schedule. That's happening in 2106. And historic dog walks, answers, <laughs> deviled eggs on the kitchen floor, mostly. Yoke side down. Uh, always horrible. God, I love double. We have a few more, but those can wait. All right, we'll save later. We'll save those for after Jeff. Keeping it real, real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is hell, and if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast at Patreon.com/slash This Is Hell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at Patreon.com/slash This Is Hell, and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast. On this week's Patreon podcast, it's our now regular feature. This Week in Hell, when I share with you what I got out of this week's hell, which is likely not what you got out of this week's hell. After all, you and I are two very different people with two very different backgrounds, with different things happening in our lives, so of course we will likely have unique takeaways from each and every episode. But often what we discuss can seem rather rarefied, that is, distant from the lives and concerns of ordinary people. For instance, this week we discussed the ugly head of neoliberalism being raised annually at the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally, the erasing of indigenous knowledge by the colonialism of science and modernity, and today's conversation about the lives of the unhoused in Beach City wherever that is. But the way I see it, and keep in mind I'm legally blind, so my perspective is skewed, each and every one of those conversations has a direct effect on our daily lives, at least on mine. They do for me. I know what they do for me. And I will explain how on our Patreon podcast, which you can hear by subscribing at patreon.com slash this is hell. Also on Patreon, we are sharing an interview from our archives that is not currently available anywhere else online at the moment. And that's what we do each and every week when we have a featured interview on the Patreon podcast. Two weeks ago, we shared an interview from 20 years ago. That conversation was on the institutional inequality and unfairness here in the United States regarding the Securities Exchange Commission and their role in the, at the time, Enron and Arthur Anderson scandals 
Last week, we turned the Wayback Machine to 15 years ago and discovered that we were discussing the plight of the family farm in the face of industrial agriculture, which came up this week in our conversation with Helen Ann Curry on the threat by Big Ag's obsession with monocrop farming on crop diversity. So this week, we are going back 10 years to 2012, where we found a conversation we had with journalist Nicholas Shaxon, author of Treasure Islands, Uncovering the Damage of Offshore Banking and Tax Havens. Yes, 10 years ago, we were talking about the evil of tax havens and how dictators can hide the money they've stolen from their citizens. In fact, the Democratic Party picked up on the idea and did everything they could to close down those offshore tax havens, and they succeeded. However, as the Pandora papers have revealed, and as we discussed this week with Catherine Stock McNichol, those tax havens have reopened in the United States, specifically in South Dakota, which is where the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally takes place annually, if the people of Sturgis want it or not. It's as if the only reason the United States wanted those tax havens protecting dictators' wealth to close was because the U.S. wasn't getting a taste of that stolen money. Which means, this week on Patreon, it's This Week in Hell, and a reminder of the campaign to close overseas tax havens, which turned into nothing more than a project to have those tax havens move to the United States, where our government and our banks could profit. But if you want to hear any and all of that, you got to subscribe to our weekly Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Coming up, Jeff Dorchin with the moment of truth, the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we'll be announcing the winner. We'll also tell you who is on next week's show. Live from Hangover Country, this is hell, and I know, Richard, you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what? Martyrs and monsters, welcome to the moment of truth, the wooden stake that is the hammer. Very difficult to use. It snuck up on us one day while we were listening to Pete Seeger and reading the diary of Anne Frank and listening to Bessie Smith and reading Edward Said and listening to Chumbawamba and reading Frantz Fanon. The agents of rot swarmed in. They came at night. They used the silence and darkness to conceal their purpose and their protocols. Or maybe it was obvious you were listening to Martin Luther King Jr. inspiring you to action against the smug, violent, comfortable bosses, leaders, and owners. The FBI and the Ku Klux Klan could be plainly seen hovering around him, making threats that had nowhere to go but into execution, and then he was killed. Everyone was getting assassinated except the people who really needed assassinating. They were cruising for an assassinating. They were clamorating for an assassinating. They were dunning for a gunning, but they never got it. Only the decent people did, plus John F. Kennedy. Rachel Carson, Joe Hill, W.E.B. Du Bois, Jacques Cousteau, Virginia Woolf, Malcolm X, Eugene V. Debs, Shirley Chisholm, Fannie Lou Hamer, Ho Chi Minh. Did they all live in vain? Were they all killed by werewolves? The current thinking is that they were. Were they all killed by the same werewolf? Current theories say probably. Does that mean they all live on as werewolves now? Yes. E.O. Wilson recently became a werewolf, in case you missed it. What exactly is a werewolf? A lot of ignorant people will try to tell you. On a podcast called Supernatural, 
a not very persuasive voice named Ashley Flowers tried and did a crap job. She began by asserting that we always cast extremely attractive men to play them in movies, like Michael J. Fox, Hugh Jackman, and Taylor Lautner. Okay, Michael J. Fox was in Teen Wolf. Taylor Lautner was in that Twilight garbage. Hugh Jackman? Is she mistaking Wolverine for a werewolf because of his suggestive facial hair? Oh, no. Right. He was a werewolf in Van Helsing. Yeah, I didn't remember that either. The writer of that first clause, We always cast extremely attractive men to play them in movies. Must have a pop culture memory. The depth of Zambonied fruit leather. The original actor to play the Universal Pictures Wolfman was Lon Chaney Jr. Not a glamorous ingenue by any measure. Actually, downright homely. There was Bela Lugosi in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman who I don't think was cast for his looks, but for his affordability. Somewhere in there was Henry Hull, star of Werewolf of London, also of indifferent attractiveness, and the most recent actor to reprise the Universal Pictures character Lawrence Talbot, a.k.a. the Wolfman, was Benicio Del Toro, portraying in hilarious fashion an emotive late 19th century Shakespearean actor, depressed and brooding. What was the point of the extremely attractive actor thing on the podcast, Supernatural? Supernatural is in the Parcast distribution family of podcast products. Slickly produced, brief, and shallow. Intellectual symptoms of the monetizing of mediocrity. The folkloric stories told in the Werewolf episode seem chosen to allow for easy segues. They aren't bad per se, or even poorly told, but they don't add up to anything. Ashley Flowers suggests, through ventriloquized mouth sounds, that there's something universal about the full moon making people squirrely, but there's nothing universal about it, nor does every folkloric werewolf story revolve around the full moon. She also suggests that the stories are about how an animalistic nature resides in all of us. But that's confusing because clearly all of us aren't very attractive actors, nor have most of us or even many of us made deals with the devil or been bitten by a werewolf or been a seventh child. Universality is the opposite of what these stories point to. I, who write my own text, thank you, am going to focus on the cursedness of the werewolf. The werewolf is unhappy. He or she, let's call it they in the current fashion, they is lonely an outcast, unable to form relationships for fear of killing their beloveds. In a way, they are allegorical, closeted queers. They believe themselves unable to overcome their curse, nor are they able to admit it to anyone. Going back further in folklore to the Middle Ages, though the transformation of humans into beasts, predatory and otherwise, dates back to before the Common Era, we find a conflation of two outcast characters, the werewolf and the wild man of the forest. Both creatures, often mistaken for one another or simply folded into each other until they're indistinguishable, live on the outskirts of society, unlike very attractive actors. They come out only furtively to abduct children or feed on livestock or abduct then feed on livestock or children, which I admit very attractive actors do, but afterwards... Werewolves quickly disappear back into their wilderness. They live just out of sight, maybe even below the surface of city streets or in parts of the city or countryside considered unfit for decent citizens to frequent and certainly unfit for any so-called respectable lifestyle. 
An aside here, there are two works I have memories of, speaking of conflation, that have folded into each other in my mind. One is a Richard Wright story, The Man Who Lived Underground, and the other the Ralph Ellison novel, Invisible Man. I can't remember which story had a man living in an underground chamber, the walls of which he'd studded with diamonds. In any case, both works are about outsiders. And the heroes I mentioned earlier were also outsiders of a kind, each of a different kind, monsters in the night forest, pushed to the periphery, shunned by those who arrogantly call themselves the decent, those who want us to believe they're upholding normalcy and respectability, patriotism, healthy values, Rachel Carson, Joe Hill, W.E.B. Du Bois, Jacques Cousteau, Virginia Woolf, Malcolm X, Eugene V. Debs, Shirley Chisholm, Fannie Lou Hamer, Ho Chi Minh, Pete Seeger, Anne Frank, Bessie Smith and Edward Said, all werewolves, finally pushed by the overweening of the overweeners to march forth into the daylight in their hairy forms and speak up for what they believe in. Marx used the vampire as a metaphor for the rich. What he didn't say, but sort of implied, was that there's a war between the people's werewolves and the creepy cabal of wealth-hoarding vampires who hide behind masks of decency. It's an age-old war. It keeps flaring up. Whenever we think we've exposed the vampires to the sunlight and burned them out of our midst, or at least been on the verge of doing so, the vampires assassinate our werewolves. We find they were always one step ahead of us, infecting a self-selecting segment of the population with vampiristic slavishness. The infected ones worship the master vampires, while we, on the other hand, have empathy and realistic respect for our werewolves. The masters incite the infected, first against the werewolves, then against us, we for whom the werewolves have spoken out and allowed themselves to become targets. Our heroes have always been socialists, ecologists, anti-colonialists, feminists, anti-capitalists, queers and werewolves. Oh, of course, one or another of them may have lost their way now and then, been a less than perfect werewolf, made regrettable decisions that ended up benefiting the vampires, but most never sold out to the vampire establishment. Most never got the chance. And if they had had the chance, they would have snarled at it. Some of you are saying, E.O. Wilson, a werewolf? Yes, maybe he was an unwitting werewolf. Rachel Carson, Jacques Cousteau, and E.O. Wilson are typical unsuspecting werewolves. Most periodic theriomorphs become so unwittingly. They might not discover what they are until the third or fourth transformation. Certainly the curse of lycanthropy takes one by surprise. If it doesn't, perhaps what you think is a werewolf is just a scheming, glory-seeking charlatan, a sheep in wolf's clothing, the majority of whom don't last long before betraying themselves. Pete Seeger? Yeah, Pete Seeger. I won't argue that there aren't many wannabe werewolves who are just little were-pomeranians or were-chihuahuas prancing at the dog show. But Pete Seeger was not one of them. Your Edwin Teller, William F. Buckley, Newt Gingrich, and Donald Rumsfeld are classic vampires, born careerists, whose every move is intended to justify their sickening vampiric desires. And those desires, and the justifications for them, never truly die, do they? They rise again and again from the grave, at first in somewhat infamiliar forms, but they soon become all too familiar. Why speak of things in this allegorical way? I have my reasons. It's particularly relevant since QAnon identified the CERN Large Hadron Collider as a hellgate. I want us all to be ready for the onslaught of vampires and their ghoulish slaves, their familiars, their Renfields, their Q-holes, their infiltrating agents. 
I don't discount any possibility when it comes to vampires conducting evil into our world, even dumb ideas invented by their spider-eating lunatic slaves. Those vampires are clever. They never stop scheming. We won't be able to defeat them completely until we elucidate all the ways they worm in and rot the edifice of public understanding for their own purposes. All that's really important, though, is that we remember the goal is to choke off the flow of blood to the vampires, all blood to the people. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Jeffy, I have to go uh, address my lack of intestinal fortitude and uh, doing going cold turkey on my meds. So uh, until yeah, next... Yeah, well, go ahead. I got to tell you, though, I'm really glad. I, I mean, sorry that you threw up, but I'm glad you did because yesterday was a terrible day. No, for you? Oh, yeah. No, great. That's great. We shared the same experience. That's fantastic. Yeah, I think, I wonder if our periods are synchronized. <laughs> I think they are. Jaffe, until next week. Yeah. Stay beautiful. Okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi <laughs> people, this is hell. We got to get that guy a cough button. Uh, Richard, please remind us what is this week's question from Al and tell us how the rest of our uh, listeners are responding to the question so far. Yes, this week's question from Al is what is more likely to happen this year than. This is Hell's anniversary party. I don't know. I, I bet that porn music in the background. I think that's what it is. <laughs> Walter M. answers, Donald Trump gets indicted. Uh, Just kidding. Yeah, it would know. probably be least likely. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And Greg G. answers, single payer health care. <laughs> that's very not likely to happen anymore. Is that, that it? That's it. Okay, so the answers I liked the most were hypocrite readers saying Cyber Jeff Dorchin comes back in time from a distant future to warn Chuck and Alex about the perils awaiting them at the 110th anniversary party before it's too late. Flying Neil saying nothing good. Michael C. saying America making the switch from anocracy to endocracy, which is a very good reference to a recent Patreon uh, podcast. John S. saying, hell will freeze over. Neil C. saying, I'll miss the party because of huge traffic jams. Somehow self-driving cars develop class consciousness and refuse to move. And David R. saying, Chuck will ask a question from hell that neither he hates to ask, they hate to answer, or any of the audience hates their response. That makes this week's winner to the question from hell, which is what is more likely to happen this year than this is hell's anniversary party? Well, it's not any of the ones I've named so far. It's Tomas J. And his answer being that what's more likely to happen this year than this is hell's anniversary party is my funeral. That makes Thomas J. the winner. Thomas or Tomas, please uh, send us your, tell us what piece of This Is Hell merchandise you would like and uh, send us your uh, mailing address and we'll get it in the mail as soon as possible. For me, I would say that what is more likely to happen than the This Is Hell listener appreciation and anniversary party and art show, This Is Art, happening on July 23rd, 2022, is... Our backup date of Saturday, September 3rd, actually being the date of This Is Hell's Anniversary Party, the Saturday during Labor Day weekend. So, we start every week's live streaming shows here at thisishell.com by revealing this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is after drinking, but before falling asleep, remember to eat a banana, then drink four ounces of milk, followed by eight ounces of water, 
If you don't remember, do hot yoga, a greasy burger, fries, and a beer. Thanks to this week's guests, historian Catherine McNichol-Stock, author of Is the Rally Really Worth It? The Sturgis Motorcycle Rally and the Costs of Neoliberalism. Thanks to historian Helen Ann Curry, author of the new book, Endangered Maze, Industrial Agriculture and the Crisis of Extinction. And thanks to today's guest, Deonera Navarez-Martinez, who conducted the Radical Housing Journal study, Homelessness in Southern California. Thanks to Richard Norwood for producing. Richard, do we know who is going to be on next week's show? Partly. Uh... For Tuesday, we have historian Hannah Farber on her book, Underwriters of the United States, How Insurance Shaped the American Founding. And on Wednesday, writer Johan Hari on his book, Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention. And a moment of truth from Jeffrey. Johan uh, Hari has been on our show several times. You can find all of our interviews with Johan by going to thisishell.com, or most of them, uh, by going to thisishell.com and searching on his last name, Hari. Thanks to Richard Norwood for producing, and also thanks for... Thanks to Sebastian Vupper for running the board this week. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for all of the work that he does. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in Rotten History and Special. Thanks to Theron Humiston, just because. Talk to you on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell when we share another edition of This Week in Hell and an interview from 10 years ago when we were discussing offshore tax havens with Nicholas Shackson. Who knew the only reason that the United States wanted to shut those tax havens down was so they could make move to the U.S. where we can profit from dictators hiding the money from their citizens. So not only is the U.S. now propping up authoritarians, we're hiding their stolen wealth for them too. There's only one way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>